Good morning. There is a place in this universe where you can go to find absolute truth. The Bible is inerrant in that it does not err. It's infallible in that it cannot err. That is a trustworthy statement. The Holy Spirit working in Martin Luther, Martin Luther came to the conclusion that the Bible was not just the authority, it was the final and absolute authority. And that doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, was the very doctrine that started the flames of the Reformation. And when John Calvin discovered it through the Holy Spirit, somewhere around the age of 20, that the Bible was the ultimate and final authority, he wrote, he preached, he taught. And these two men, Martin Luther and John Calvin, are the absolute giants of the Western civilization. Because even today, we are influenced by their writing, by their thinking. We belong to the Presbyterian Church in America. And Dave and Joe and Jeff and Chuck Rain and I all had to sign an oath that we believe that the Bible is the absolute authority, is the word of God. Our constitution in the PCA says, the constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America, which is subject to and subordinate to the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We need to hear that as we start to preach, as we start to hear the word, that we're going into the scriptures. That's our authority. So this morning we're looking at a trustworthy saying. Some commentators think the trustworthy saying starts in verse 4 of chapter 3 of Titus and goes through verse 7. That's one of those Pauline sentences of about 71 words. Others say it's really in the um, 8th verse. So today we're going to concentrate on Titus 3, 3 to 8, remembering it ends with 3 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The idea of this scripture is to ask this question. If you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough good works in you to show evidence Roman Catholicism says you need to have faith and good works in order to go to heaven. Good works can be penance. It could be mass. It could be infant baptism, uh, indulgences. Uh, all the things that they practice say are good works. And they will tell you that you need faith plus good works in order to get to heaven. From the Reformation down, we would say, when you trust in Christ alone, as the scriptures dictate to us, we have heaven, salvation, eternal life. And because of that, we want to do good works to show our gratitude. So listen then to the inerrant, infallible word of God in Titus 
3, verses 3 to 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renew of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we need your help to explain the scriptures. Oh, Holy Spirit, teach me. Help us, both the preacher and the listeners. And may we walk away understanding, Lord, that in our gratitude, we certainly want to do good works to the glory of God alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. Grandparents generally love their grandchildren. That's a trustworthy saying, wouldn't you say? If you want to get rich in the stock market, you should probably buy low and sell high. Or buy high and sell higher. That's trustworthy. The Orlando Magic will win the NBA championship in year 2017. That's not very trustworthy. That's fantasy. I even looked up the odds. It's 200 to 1. Our daughter-in-law, Elena, came to the United States 21 years ago from Crimea. She grew up in communist Russia and Crimea. During the 70s and 80s, of course, Crimea, while it belonged to Ukraine, was run by Moscow. She grew up in a communist home. She grew up under communism. She got her master's in math. Some professors and visiting dignitaries from Auburn University were in Russia, and they used her as their translator. And as they got to know her, they said, why don't you come to Auburn, Alabama, and go to school and be part of our international studies? And so with $50 in her pocket 21 years ago, she landed here. And she told me this. She said, because there are no billboards in Russia or Crimea, she'd look at the billboards and believe them. Best hamburger in town. She'd go there. We will absolutely not be undersold. She'd go there. The finest values for your money. She'd go there. It took her somewhere six months to a year to find out what? They weren't trustworthy sayings. She was being lied to. And I got thinking from the time we were this high, how many advertisements have we heard 
at least some of which aren't trustworthy. I mean, if I took every medicine that Fox News produces from six to midnight, I'd be a zombie. Six, think about that. We grow up not trusting because we know we have been lied to. And so we go to the scriptures and the scriptures don't lie to us. And we get to the point, and it's the reason why I emphasize so much sola scriptura, scripture alone, authority, because these are trustworthy sayings. And in this section of scripture, Titus 3, 3 to 8, we have six ingredients of salvation. If you notice in your notes, I listed John uh, Stott because John Stott identified these and explained these so well. I just thought I'd put his name in there. I want you to see these six ingredients of salvation. And I want you to write down in the space that's been allotted. Because if you have these six ingredients, you can explain it to your Sunday school class, to your neighbors, to your children. You can leave it at the doctor's office and people can pick it up and say, ah. So what are these six ingredients? First of all, you need to understand your need for salvation. Look what the Bible has to say about you and me before we were saved. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Boy, that sounds like nice people, doesn't it? That's who the Bible says we are. But one of the biggest indictments of all is found in Romans 3.10. And when I read this, I almost shake, except when I get further on in Romans and I realize God has saved me. But listen to this indictment beginning with Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Isn't that a terrible indictment? But that's who people are who are without Christ. It's a motive for evangelism. It's a motive to say, thank you, God, you have rescued me. For many years, as pastor, I would lead teams on evangelism explosion. And we'd go into homes, and frankly, most of the people we visited had visited our church. A large majority of them were Christians. But when I asked the question, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you go to heaven and you wait for that answer? And then you say, may I ask you another question? If you were to die tonight and God says, why should I let you in my heaven? What would you say? Well over 90% of the people who weren't Christians would say this. I'm a pretty good person. Oh, pastor, I don't want you to think I'm perfect. You know, I'm not perfect, but I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't murdered anybody. I take care of my family. And you're thinking Romans 3.10. You understand. 
who you are without salvation. The tremendous need that you have. So the very first thing is understand your need for salvation. And then secondly, what is the source? Understand the source. Who's the source? Jesus saves. Sometimes we may kid our Baptist brothers when they say, brother, are you saved? We think that's kind of archaic. But Jesus came to save us. Listen to these verses. Matthew 1.21. You know, Joseph was really uptight about what was happening. His bride-to-be was with child. He was, what am I going to do? And the angel of the Lord, Matthew 1.21. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is what the angel told Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How about Luke 19.10? For the son of man, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. 1 John 4.14. And as we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Jesus' mission was a rescue mission. Now, you know, angels aren't omnipotent. They don't know or omniscient. They don't know everything going on. By picture in my mind, one of the archangels have come back, back from a big meeting up there in heaven. And he tells the other angels, guess what? It's been agreed to by God, the Father, God, the Son, God, and the Holy Spirit, that the Son is going to go to earth and get our people. And the other angels would think, man, the chariots. Because we know there can be a million chariots and they could come down and sweep. Are we going down in chariots? And the archangel said, well, I just came back from the meeting and that's not the way they're going to do it. Well, how are they going to do it? He's going to come as a baby. Oh, you mean he's going to be Augusta Caesar's heir? And he will rule the Roman Empire. And with his power, he will save his people. No. No, no. He, he, he's going to go as a illegitimate child of a Jewish teenage mother. <laughs> and he's going to live the perfect life down there. And he's going to be without sin. And he dies. For his people. He takes their sin. That's the rescue mission. Never get over the childish delight that Jesus came and saved us. It's still the message that needs to be told over and over and over again. It's Jesus that saved us. We don't have to be ashamed of that. In fact, we should just thank you, Jesus. I believe probably the biggest thing we should do as Christians is work on our lives in gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we see the need, we see the source. How about the ingredient of mercy? 
Understand the ground of your salvation. Look what the Bible says. He saved us not because of work done by us, but according to his own mercy. Doesn't your gratitude start just welling up inside you? God's mercy. He had mercy on me. I had an experience of coming to Christ when I was a child. I wasn't in a Christian home. And as Peggy and I got married, uh, I drifted away in a sense. We were always in church. But at the age of 39, I, I started to read scripture. And I found this. That I was going to hell in a three-piece suit. Until Christ saved me. By his mercy. God doesn't look down and say, he's a pretty good guy. I'm going to save him. God looks down and says, that guy's a mess, but he's one of our kids. And we're going to get him. We're going to get him. And once you understand you're one of God's kids, what's your reaction? Good works. Thank you. The fourth ingredient is means. How did he do it? Well, let's look at the scripture. This sounds very biblical. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. How did he do it? The Holy Spirit's job is to penetrate you. And we believe as Reformed believers that you're regenerated before you can receive Christ. The Holy Spirit's already working in you. And there's maybe some folks here this morning And you're not here by accident. Providence brought you here. So you're here. And God is working on you because the Holy Spirit's working on you. The Holy Spirit's saying, you know what? The Bible seems to make sense to me this morning. Let's say that this is your life from this point to this point, and that's eternity. I guess you're heavenly bodies, but that's just eternity. Sometime from your birth till you're 5, 10, 15, 20, 39, 59, sometime, Holy Spirit's convinced you and you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. At that moment, you have been justified. It's a theological term to mean you have been granted the righteousness of Christ. The theologians call it alien righteousness. Because the Bible says there's no righteousness in you. You can convince God that he should let you in this heaven. So once in your life, and that's when you believe, you are justified. You are declared holy. You receive the righteousness of Christ. One of the words that was a big argument during the Reformation was the word imputation. They argued that back and forth. Because again, the Roman Catholics say you have to believe and then have all these good works and then you're acceptable. The Reformers said, no, you receive Christ. 
And then from then on, you receive, at the moment you receive Christ, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you, charged to your account. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, God looked at Jesus as if he had lived my life. He looks at me, a believer, as if I had lived Jesus's life. And his righteousness is imputed to me. Does that mean we're perfect? No. It means our standing before God is that because we are his children and we believe, we are granted righteousness. That happens in our justification. Then there's a time. And out here, we die. And when we die, we go to glorification. Now, what happens with sin and glorification? There is no sin. What happens to sin and justification? It's been paid for. What is that process from justification to glorification? That's a theological term, sanctification. And it simply means that during the time we become Christians and the time we physically die, God and the Holy Spirit is convicting of us our sin and we are having the power of sin diminish in our lives. It will never go away until we are glorified. So during our life as Christians, God is working on us. Very important terms. In here, and the means, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ, verse 7. So being justified by grace. We're declared righteous by the grace of God. Now, what's the goal? Why did God go to all this trouble sending his son to save us? Why did he send the Holy Spirit to enter us and to regenerate us? Well, let's see what the scripture says. So being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Some of you have adopted children. You go and you pick out the child. You give that child your name, your home, and your inheritance eventually. We are adopted by God. And we have an inheritance. The inheritance of the riches of heaven. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are his heirs. And we need to appreciate that. And just thank you, Lord. Thank you. That having said all these five ingredients of need, source, ground, and means, and goal, Paul and the Holy Spirit said, now there's got to be some evidence. Should be good works. James says, faith without works is dead. What do he mean by that? It means if there's no work in your life, good work, you're probably not saved. There's got to be evidence. Well, what is a good work? If I break 100 playing golf, that is a really good work. 
Back when I wasn't living in a condo and I cut the grass, my wife thought that was a really good work. But that's just human definitions. What's God's definitions of a good work? Well, let's look at that. I think a good work is what God thinks is good. Not what you think is good, but what does God think is good? What is it? Well, I think there's two phases of good works. There's an internal phase. And there's an external phase. The internal phase is Christian character. The external phase is Christian behavior. Did you know that there's a report card about your Christian character in the Bible? Have you read Galatians 5.22? says the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit working in you. The Spirit working in you. Gives you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, a list of internal character building characteristics. We might say that love, joy, and peace is toward God. We have a love for God. If we don't, we pray for that. We have a peace with God. Having been justified by his grace, we have peace with God, the Bible says. We have the joy in our salvation. Even while all the difficult things are going on around the world and in our country, we can still have the joy of being in God. We can have patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And many of these things take some real hard work. For men to get off pornography would be a very good work. That'd be a great way to have self-control. Most of the battles we face are internal. It's building the Christian character. And that's the reason why we worship. That's the reason why we read our scripture. That's the reason why we pray. We say, God, I'm a mess. But I love you and you saved me. Help me. But there's an external phase of good works, is there not? What do we actually do? When you bring a red bag, that's a good work. It goes further than that. When you worship, work is the expenditure of energy to accomplish a task. A good work is that which is pleasing to God. That which you accomplish in his name and for him is a good work. Being a good dad, father, grandfather, husband, son, child, mom. That's a good work. And it does take work. Prayer. The expenditure of energy to accomplish a good task. All of you know that prayer is work. It takes time. It takes energy. That's a good work. See, we immediately jump to we should take care of the poor, and we should. We should visit the people in prison, and we should. We should clothe the naked, and we should. Jesus said all that in Matthew 25. And we jump to that. And we should. But in addition to that, we say, how about my prayer life? That's a good work. Worshiping. How about tithing? When you give generously to your church, you have, 
You have a building. You have a great pastoral staff and his staff. Making an impact in this community. I roughly figured out if you multiply the number of children in our school and our preschool times so many hours a day times uh, 176 days a year, something like that, there's about a million hours of discipleship going on in this complex every school year, let alone what takes place other times. This church does a fabulous job at missions. I'm just absolutely impressed with the number of people who go, the number of people called to go, the amount of money is spent, the number of missionaries. Folks, that is really good work. We do all this to the glory of God. I don't want to get too theological on you, but do you notice we really didn't handle the five solas of the Reformation? Five things with the Reformers said we actually have to have. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone, justified by grace. Grace alone, which is Sola Gratia. Solus Christos, Christ alone. Sole de Gloria, to the glory of God. We are children of God. We're children of the Reformation. We are Christian people. And lastly, if there's anyone, and you're not here by accident, God brought you here. We would like to pray with you and just help you so you can have the joy of God, the love of Christ in you. Father in heaven, if there's any person here, Lord, who's been moved by the Holy Spirit, may this be the day that they say, thank you, Jesus, I understand. Forgive me for my sins. I receive and accept you alone for salvation. And Father, for those who have been kind of on the border, may this sermon and the penetration of the Holy Spirit help them. And Lord, we thank you for Orangewood Presbyterian Church, for its love of you and your word. Thank you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.